the northern hemisphere is deep into fall. School has been in session for a while now, and the first benchmark into the holiday season is here, Thanksgiving. Our host took this as an opportunity to reflect on our stateside education system and its relationship with the history of Native American, Indigenous, and First Nation folks. This episode takes a look at Native American history being taught in high schools from a media literacy perspective. Awande Industries Production Wande Reads Podcast Hey Alicia, have you ever thought about the ways education could be biased? Absolutely. Whoever writes the history that is taught is the perspective and bias the students will first absorb. In most cases, that's white American men. I think the materials chosen and the ways teachers teach have the most impact on how much biased information we consume. What about you, Charlie? Well, this is an interesting topic for me, as I spent seven years as a high school teacher in Australia. I will have to admit, history does not exactly fall into my list of strengths. Although, what is taught in the land down under is different to here. However, the principal methods and structures uh, is relatively the same. Teachers have a very big impact on what a child learns in school, the ability to really structure their thinking processes, considering kids uh, spend half of their lives in schools for all their development years. Very true. So I bring this up because on the way to jury duty this week, my Uber driver explained that he believes Democrats are ruining California. One of his biggest reasons is that he believes schools are entirely run by liberal minds, indoctrinating kids into leftist thinking. So he feels like there isn't really room for other opinions. I asked him why he thought professors might be left-leaning, and he didn't share characteristics that lead to progressive beliefs, but he did say that each generation of liberal people radicalizes the next. I don't disagree with him, but I guess the difference between us is that I don't see a problem with it if we trust people are aware enough to come to their own conclusions. But that being said, I am progressive, so I'm going to lean positively toward liberal schools. (laughs) So I'm really excited for us to explore the potential biases in the U.S. education system for this episode. Same. With Thanksgiving coming up, it seems like a great time to talk about our relationship with Native American, First Nation, and Indigenous folks. To do this, we've pulled up some samples of U.S. history lessons and textbooks taught in high school classes. The U.S. relationship to Native Americans in the past isn't too far off from their treatment today. It's indisputable how poorly Native Americans have been treated over the decades with violence and disenfranchisement. I'm curious to see how this plays out with the textbook language. Yep. One in three Native American and Native Alaskan women is projected to be raped in her lifetime. First Nation and Native Americans are disproportionately trafficked in the United States, and tribal tribal agencies are understaffed, underfunded, and undertrained for this. So it's difficult to get agencies between municipalities to communicate with each other about victims. Apparently, some law enforcement staff didn't even realize that trafficking is a crime they have jurisdiction over, or they don't believe it even exists in their communities. It's easy for U.S. law enforcement to ignore the issue by saying it's out of their jurisdiction. Also, it's a common misconception that trafficking only exists outside of the United States in places that are so-called dirty, dangerous third world countries. European settlers showed up and decided to call the land we're on the U.S. or America. Technically, this whole land was called something else by its original keepers. Our assumption to call it U.S. history is pretty dismissive of their presence and super settler-centric. Right off the bat, this speaks to the power dynamic in this country. 
I guess one alternative viewpoint would be to approach it with the mentality of the U.S. is simply the most widely used modern title, so that's why it makes sense to call it U.S. history now. That being said, even calling this group of people Native Americans is coming from a settler point of view. Yeah. It's also important to remember that the U.S. is part of two continents that were called North and South America. The U.S. largely took the term America to mean U.S., which is widely acknowledged globally, except by the many other countries that also make up the Americas. Okay, let's hold up a sec and not serve the main course in our intro. Let's dig into this more with our assessment of the textbook. All right, cool. So here we go. We're going to address a few things when we look at this text. One, we want to see who created the message. We also want to look at how they grab people's attention, like what techniques they use. And we also want to understand how other people outside of ourselves might interpret the, lang uh, the language of the text and what point of views, values, and lifestyles are or are not represented by it. Then we want to figure out why this message was being sent and determine who the message is intended for. And hopefully through these assessments, we'll get a sense of the intention and impact from the message. So to kick things off, let's call out the folks who wrote this thing. The contributors in the textbook represent a few universities, namely Ventura College, Cal State Fullerton, Keene State College, which is out of New Hampshire, Clarion University from Pennsylvania, Oral Roberts University from Oklahoma, and the first two colleges were from California. So looking at the contributors, I googled them, <laughs> I found photos of all but one, who is John M. Lund, and it's worth pointing out that they were all older white men. And we can also call out Rice University, a research college which runs OpenStax, a 501c3 nonprofit that publishes peer-reviewed, openly licensed college textbooks for free online or low-cost print. So the next thing we want to think about are the techniques that were used to grab attention. So for me, the only thing I really noticed was that there's a gray box below the section title to describe what they expect you to take away from the reading. And it highlights methods the government's used against Native Americans and what quote unquote Americanization is. Yeah, I find the learning objectives a bit curious, especially the focus on what methods the government's used to fight the Native Americans. Like, why exactly is that the first and primary takeaway mm -hmm. um, that you should be taking from this? Not say why it was wrong that we decimated yeah. entire civilizations and what happened to them, but that's just my perspective. Um, the titles of each section as well, Claiming Land, Relocating Landowners, American Indian Submission, and Americanization are pretty nationalist and they kind of sound like, you know, they're constantly pointing at how we were victorious um, and they're very uh, harmless yeah. sounding. Like it's a very politically correct way of describing what happens in all those chapters, even though it's pretty gruesome, the details they go into and obviously the reality of the history. Yeah. See, um, I have this weird dyslexia thing that I do. I usually read the fine print first and then <laughs> afterwards the big letters stating what I've been reading. So uh, it's like walking into the middle of a movie, getting all caught up with all the drama and then uh, finding out what the movie is. So um, so you can imagine that I was quite upset when I read the first line under learning objective was describe the methods the US government used to address the Indian threat. 
during the settlement of the West. Again, the word used here was Indian threat. So I'll just let you sit on that for a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point. And actually, even in you sharing that, I wondered, like when I first read it, I wondered if they put parentheses mm -hmm. on purpose yeah. to further highlight like this is totally wrong, <laughs> almost like in a sarcastic mm. way, referring to it as Indian threat. But in the context of media literacy, that's just my own interpretation and kind of how you just presented it, like the fact that they called that out made it seem as if the exact opposite, like they were framing it as Indian threat. Yes. And that's problematic because it was the other way around. Um, and before we move on, I also wanted to call out I don't think we've said it yet, but the title of yeah. this chapter in the mm -hmm. book, and it's actually not even a full chapter, it's just mm -hmm. a section within a chapter <laughs> called The Loss of American Indian Life and Culture. Yeah. And so just a small little bit. Right. And I, <laughs> um, sorry, continue. No, no, go ahead. I was just thinking, like, especially with that title, I'm so glad you brought that up. But as we talk about later, like, American. Uh, the loss of American Indian life as if like Native Americans don't exist mm. anymore. You know what I mean? Like it's like, and culture, mm. like, like as if this was completely it and how we finally conquered and decimated mm. their population. And I think that's really misleading. And especially I feel like I think about this is probably for high school kids or even younger. And so they might not understand like when they do use words yeah. like Indian threat and quotation marks, like why that would be, um, and that they might be being like sarcastic or trying to use the lingo that people would have used back then. But that kind of does it a disservice. And it could make a lot of people read that at face value and really think like they mean Indian threat in that way, which is very offensive. Mm -hmm. Definitely language matters a lot. So Moving on to the next thing, which is how different people might understand the message from ourselves. So I guess my initial thought was that authors, the authors could have done more to explain why Americanization was and is wrong, like you said, Alicia, but that's probably because of my personal leanings. I think maybe someone else might interpret this as being awesome, believing that it's the best thing for Native Americans, and saying that colonialism was probably going to happen anyway because of what the other major powers in the world were doing, so at least they didn't completely wipe out Native Americans. I feel really sick saying that, but that is the reality that some people view Americanization as one of the greatest things to happen to the people in this land. Totally, and I think people really do. I also wanted to call out that they do highlight two areas outside of the standard text. Um, in one box is a quote from Nez Pierce Chief Joseph titled, I Will Fight No More, and it basically highlights a speech that he supposedly said about how weary and tired he was of all the destruction, but in a way that makes it sound like he was like him resisting the colonial settlers is why he's tired, not because of like how awful yeah. we were being to, to them and why they had to fight back. Um, and the other is a click to explore section at the very end, going back to what you're talking about on Americanization. It says where they link one of the main schools that Indian children were sent to for, for Americanization. And they notably say this well-intended school before finishing with obliterated Indian culture. So was mm. it well-intended? <laughs> really? Like, I, I don't think it was necessary to put that in there. Um, we don't need to, like, further make yeah. excuses for our behavior. And I just felt like that was yeah. unnecessary. 
I think by doing this, it glosses over the details of the Americanization process. And they're making it also harder for kids to digest like the true reality of what happened to these people at these schools and why it was even problematic to send them to these schools and why like their Americanization slash assimilation process was not this like peaceful ending. It was a further cultural slaughter after years of literal physical slaughter. And it kind of wraps it up like, well, that's just how we made peace and it ended. And it was inevitable, as you yeah. said. It just seemed like they were talking about it was inevitable to almost wipe out a whole civilization. Even in the event of cooperation by the Indian tribes, they just had to wipe them out to neutralize any possibility of future uprisings. Doesn't this sound all too familiar? And that technique, taking children, taking Indian children away from their families and, and placed in schools as a form of Americanization is exactly the same process the Brits did a couple of decades or so ago when they were colonizing Australia. Might as well call it Australianization. Do they call it anything, Charlie? They call it a few things. And um, I actually forgot the term that they they use. Oh, that's right. Stolen, the stolen generation or the stolen children or something. I mean, it was just... Yeah, that that sounds way more appropriate than Americanization. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I would actually commend our former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd back in the days. I think that was in two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, when he came out and actually uh, made a full pledge statement and apology to the Indigenous people for that era. Wow, that's awesome! As a result of these children literally being forcibly removed from their homes mm. and put into boarding schools in an effort to like quote unquote civilize them with what we consider American values, mm. aka colonized society. Mm. The US government created the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act, but thus this is obviously decades after mm. all of this pain and suffering occurred. And even then, in 2018, a Texan federal judge decided in favor of a non-native parent, mm. which was against this act. And it just shows that in spite of the very minimal that the US government does to protect native American people, we still even counteract it anyway yeah. in the favor of non-native mm -hmm. people. And one quote from a historian who studies this is, she, her name is Margaret Jacobs, and she's from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, but there's this idea that Indian children don't really belong with their families, mm. and they would be better off with white families. And I think that has to do largely in part with the way that we've presented them in history. And outside of this textbook, like, usually you when you look at kids playing with the Wild West with, like, the crazy Indians that you have to shoot down as the hero mm -hmm. cowboy. So I think that all plays into this. But moving on. Sorry, I just went on a little bit. Oh, important. Um, the, let's address the point of views and values or lifestyles that aren't represented by the book. So... For me, looking at this, the book is outlined in order of years, and chapter 17 is are the years from 1840 to 1900, but this section isn't until page 
496, and Native Americans definitely existed before those years, but this is the only section that's truly dedicated to them, and it heavily focuses on the interaction Native Americans had with colonists and their losses, rather than any other part of their history, as if the only significant part of their existence is their relationship with settlers. So this heavily settler colonial centric, this is heavily settler colonial centric, even though they're trying to acknowledge how settlers deeply screwed these people. Yeah. It's definitely not written from a Native American perspective. Right. That is just such a good point. Um, it's interesting that they chose to feature them at the end of their resistance for land rights versus when we actually got here and um, if, they, if they want to do U.S. history. So when we got here and what we've been doing to them up until this point for years, we don't get the real backstory of the people and we don't get enough detail in the ways in which we had failed to coexist with them peacefully that resulted into this moment um, of battles and the end of Indian culture as it's captured, as it's titled, sorry. We miss the point of view of civilians, be it from either side. So I also thought like, you know, we only hear about this in the construct of the battle, the chief versus the colonel, etc. And we don't really know what it was like for the everyday person. Was every white person supporting the slaughter and elimination? Did like how close were tribes to the towns where white people had set up shop and home like did they have any other interaction what was the president saying or doing because they mentioned that abraham lincoln condemned the brutal slaughter of a tribe but then hung 38 native american men that he found guilty and that just seems like that there's so much left out of the story um so if the president's involved in this or like a lot of the colonels said they were or it said in the text that a lot of colonels were condemned for multiple slaughters or for their responses but nothing seemed to be done. They seem to still have their jobs. Um, they seem to keep going on. So that doesn't really make sense to me. And yeah, I just have a lot of questions about how life actually was up until this point and how it got there. Yeah. So many questions left unanswered in this book. And both uh, Zoe and Alicia pointed this out well, that they left out so much of history uh, considering the first colony was founded in Jamestown, Virginia, this is what I found out, guys, <laughs> in Virginia, all the way back in 1607. But um, slightly off topic, but I'd like to add, it's from the AmericasLibrary.gov, probably worth pointing out, is that many of the people who settled in the New World came to escape religious persecution. The reason why I kind of highlighted escape religious persecution is the way they brought in the uh, Christian ideology and other things like that, but I'm not going to get into that now. And then the Pilgrims, founders of Plymouth, Massachusetts, arrived in 1620 in both Virginia and Massachusetts. The colonists flourished with some assistance by Native Americans. This, to me, really opened up a really big can of worms, so we might revisit this another day. So, moving forward, why why do you think this message is being sent? I mean, I guess the most obvious thing, because it's in a t- history textbook, <laughs> is to teach students about U.S. history and its destruction of Native American life or culture, and... Maybe yeah. also to cover all the bases for white guilt. <laughs> Earlier, I was I mentioned indignation because it doesn't talk about Native Americans before the land became the U.S. But maybe that would have to radically change the subject of this book or how we define the U.S. Mm-hmm. Like, is the U.S. just 
the government itself when it was um, put into place or is the U.S. this land in all of its history of all time? So what would this be called if we zoomed out of its coverage? And it's sort of arrogant that we don't consider other histories as prioritized in this subject. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think we, I know that we came here and they called it the U.S. So in theory, the U.S. as what it is did not exist before that. But we like to act like nothing existed before that and that we have full ownership of this country, which is not true at all and is still not true. Um, and it would be interesting if textbooks could actually talk about the history of this country as a whole accurately. Um, and I definitely only recall being taught things in school through like the American, your U.S. point of view. And by that, I mean, of course, the white male point of view, as well as the white European male point of view up until we became the U.S., of course. So I think this unfortunately, uh, very unfortunately, this chapter actually does a better job at showing our violent behaviors toward the Native American people than the textbook that I recall having in school. Um, but it's not comprehensive. And as you mentioned, it's only on page 496 in a small section in a chapter. And it's still only from our point of view. Um, and there's a lot, a lot of details and history left out. So I think it's being sent because it's required to teach some of this in high school, at least in California. I don't even know if that's required across the whole country. And it's the easiest way they thought they could do it in a short chapter that they could feel good about. Yeah. Well, um, the Uber driver of yours, Zoe, uh, did mention that California schools are so liberal. So maybe uh, not trying to jump ship here, but they could be recalling history as accurately as possible without shooting themselves in the foot and losing like their publishing rights or funding and all these other things. Yeah, it's actually interesting you bring that up because I feel like if California is such a liberal state, then I don't know. Well, one, I don't know if it's political to literally represent history. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't know why this has become mm, a political totally. thing because <laughs> I'm not saying that we should say like native Americans were the best way to run the government because yeah. they also fought between tribes and that would be problematic for me. I wouldn't want to go fight another tribe right now in my everyday <laughs> life. But I do think that yeah. it's, weird that we only want to talk about the way the Native Americans Mm -hmm. lost and we don't really talk that much about their culture. I know there are other history classes that you can take that focus on those things, but I feel like it should be integrated in U.S. history because it was a huge part of it. So it wasn't like the U.S. only existed when colonists Mm -hmm. came here and likewise it wasn't like Vietnam only existed when the U.S. went and fought Vietnam. Right. Um, but it, it seems like that whenever I look up Vietnam on Google or something, it just like shows the Vietnam War yeah, yeah. <laughs> because of Google's algorithm. But anyway, <laughs> I'm kind of going off track. But yeah, that's a really good point, Charlie, and fair. But I also kind of feel like, I mean, this is, I haven't done a lot of research on this, but I I feel like the publishing industry is kind of monopolized. So I don't know if they would lose out on that. Like, I don't know if schools would actually even bother, or the state government would bother investing the time to find a new publisher Mm. to base it on their curriculum. I don't know. But anyway, so 
looking at who this message is intended for, we kind of talked about it already, but just young adults and high schoolers. Yeah, and anyone who is even capable of reaching 496 pages in a textbook. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, okay, Charlie, I'm glad you said that because now I think about it, teachers just pick Mm -hmm. random chapters. You don't even read the whole textbook. So, like, what if teachers don't even cover this section? No, they probably (laughs) skip by it. To sum it up, it is very clear that the strategies enforced during colonialism are horrific and very inhumane. And don't even get me started on what I just learned about the current version of the Pocahontas. <laughs> Maybe we should start a new series of actual facts of these weird tales. Seriously, I'd say that this history book is definitely more thoughtful about how they present the information about Native Americans and Indigenous people than what I recall from my high school education. So maybe there's progress. But that said, only having one section within a chapter that focuses on the removal of their cultural lives isn't holistic of who they were and are as a people in our land's history. There's still so much missing. And I can totally imagine my 16-year-old self eye-rolling at the prospect of adding more to study. But as an adult that understands a tiny percentage of the issues Indigenous populations face, taking the initiative to dignify I don't even know if this is the right word, but maybe like respect at the very least with proper history is the least we can do. Otherwise, erasure will continue. And one note is that only 175 out of the more than 300 native languages remain today, according to the Indigenous Language Institute. And it's predicted that without any measure set up to salvage the remaining languages, about 20 will be left by 2050. Mm. And did you know that Native Americans have to prove their bloodline in order to get government support? I'm not going to rant on this, but I highly recommend looking into the blood quantum laws and how seriously messed up they are. You can't have children outside of your tribe without disseminating its sovereignty. Why do we keep pretending like Native Americans were a sad little blip in the past? They're still here in spite of the complete disregard we've shown them throughout history. Currently, Native Americans represent less than one percent of the students' population in the U.S., wow. and the U. Excuse me, and the Native Americans' dropout rate is twice the nation's average, and is more than any other U.S. racial or ethnic group. Some of the dropout is directly linked to the structural deterioration and poor equipment of schools due to insufficient funding from the federal government, which is also related to the blood quantum mm-hmm. laws. Yeah, this is a pattern. Things may be improving, but not quickly enough. The implication that these people are less worthy civilized than the settler uh, colonists who took over the land is still carried in the minds of the people who took these lessons decades ago. Now we're adults that are running things. We have to be proactively better. Like, about 46% of all Native American women have experienced some sort of physical abuse, including rape, stalking, or dating or domestic violence. It is also envisioned that one in three Indian women will experience physical trauma at some point in their life. On some reservations, Native American women are murdered at a rate 10 times more than the nation's average. Report from the Department of Justice in 1990 states 80% of the physical abuses and rape experienced by Native American women are perpetrated by non-Native Americans and often on Native land. 
There was a report that trafficked Native women will lie about their ethnicity in order to avoid the violence that specifically comes with their Native status. Native women have been fetishized for abuse since the start of colonization. Columbus and his men sold Taino women and girls for rape, a.k.a. the original sex traffickers. George Washington's troops killed everyone and saved the young women who they raped and then murdered in a more shameful manner. Colonizers sold women and children for sex labor trafficking, including in government and Christian-run boarding schools. They ingrained in culture that this was the way. Colonizers built a culture of dehumanizing Native people. It permeates in the laws embedded in our country today, including rulings made by RBG, which we'll link in these notes. These decisions directly contribute to the risk factors that lead to trafficking within Native communities. Homelessness, poverty, addiction, trauma, and a lack of support systems. The mistreatment definitely isn't just in a chapter in the past. Our blind eye is letting the problems get worse for those who are still alive. Labor traffickers prey on both native male and female victims to work in oil fields, uh, sweatshops and other as and as domestic help. Traffickers will bring victims to work within man camps where thousands of male workers from other places who come into native territories to profit off pipeline works and other things like that. This corresponds to an exponential increase in crimes against women in those areas. We have an opportunity now to elevate native and indigenous voices while they are alive and here. One day exists because of people who are motivated to call out injustice. We're trying to tear down a billion dollar slave industry through research, education and personal advocacy. To learn more about what we're working on, follow our Instagram at one day underscore IND. Thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn more about stopping the traffic. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Cool. How do we do? Should we stop recording? Yeah.